two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, Gounod's setting of Shakespeare's most famous play, Romeo and Juliet. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. To learn more, visit metguild.org. I'm Naomi Baratera. The Metropolitan Opera rang in the new year with a new production of Gounod's Romeo et Juliette. Today, seasoned stage director Jay Lessinger discusses the transformation of the work from play to opera and explores how Gounod captures in music the irrepressible passion of our star-crossed title characters. I have to admit that uh, Romeo and Juliet has always been one of my guilty pleasures. Uh, I discovered the opera when I was a teenager um, uh, in 1967, a year after the Met moved over to the new theater, they did a new production of Romeo and Juliet. In fact, Romeo and Juliet had not been in the house for over 20 years, even though it was an enormously popular opera uh, at the turn of the century. And so, of course, I, as I did in those days, taped the broadcast with my reel-to-reel tape recorder and got to know the music. And it wasn't a bad cast at all. It was Franco Corelli and Morella Franey. Uh, not bad. And a really quite lovely production. And um, I, I'll admit to you, as, as wonderful an opera as Faust is, it's just never been one of my great favorites. And you're not supposed to say that. You know, Faust is the great opera of Gounod. But I have to admit that for me, it was always Romeo and Juliet. I was very lucky about uh, nine or 10 years ago to finally get to direct it. Opera Carolina asked me to do a production. I had a lovely cast down there. And I hadn't listened to the opera in many years, frankly, and pulled it out and listened to it again and realized why I had loved it so much when I was younger. It is simply beautiful from beginning to end. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about Gounod. We'll talk about him a little bit this evening, obviously. Um, and some people feel uh, that he's perhaps not as deep a composer as some of the others that we're well familiar with, uh, perhaps. Uh, but the fact is he certainly knew how to write a great melody. And he certainly knew how to please his audience. He was hugely popular during his time. Though interestingly enough, for the amount of operas he wrote, he was really popular because of Faust and then Romeo and Juliet. I'm going to go back a little bit because this was an interesting time in the 19th century in France. The tradition of opera was grand opera. And it was being performed in this this theater, the Théâtre Imperial de l'Opéra. This is not the opera house that you're all familiar with, the Palais Garnier. This was the major opera house of the first half of the 19th century in Paris. Um, And of course, there had been the tradition. By that point, the operas that we all know from before the 1830s would have been Mozart, Bellini, Donizetti, uh, Rossini. Uh, But the taste of the public was changing. The middle class, the bourgeois, uh, bourgeoisie was growing in power and, uh, uh, and, and economic power, uh, and they wanted to see something for their money. They liked spectacle, especially in Paris. The opera that formed kind of a transition from Mozart and Rossini was uh, William Tell. Um, imagine many of you got to see the William Tell production at the Met last, this, earlier this season. 
And um, uh, it's interesting because that opera really is transitional. It, it is really about spectacle. Uh, and uh, it was Rossini was beginning to use bigger orchestration. Uh, as you well may know, uh, after writing that opera, he, or one more, I think, after that, he put his pen down and never wrote another opera and lived for another 30 or 40 years. But he saw the changes were coming in opera. The main composers of this time, from the 1830s into the 60s, were Alevi. Uh, many of you may have seen his opera La Juive, the Jewess, which was at the Met some years ago. Rarely done these days. And then there was Giacomo Meyerbeer. Meyerbeer was the composer in France and really recognized throughout Europe, the, probably the most famous. I always call him kind of the Andrew Lloyd Webber of his time. Now, I'm going to be struck by lightning for this, because we all know that Andrew Lloyd Webber is enormously popular. But I wonder, 50 years from now or 100 years ago from now, how popular he will be. He's a hugely successful composer. You know, I, loved, I love his melodies and tunes as well. Um, but, you know, I'm a Sondheim fan. What can I tell you? you know? uh, thank you. So are you. But the fact is that Meyerbeer, again, knew how to please his public. He wrote event operas. He wrote operas that would uh, 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 suit spectacle in the theater. Uh, his most famous operas, Les Huguenots, The Huguenots, uh, Robert Le Diable, Robert the Devil, which was his first big hit, and Le Prophète. Now, Le Prophète has been done at the Met, though it's been many, many years since they've done it. He, in turn, influenced Wagner, though Wagner would never admit it, because Wagner turned on his mentor some years later. Very, that's a whole other very nasty story, uh, but that's another lecture. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, he influenced Verdi as well. Now, these operas generally were French. It really was the French opera Paris that could produce these big spectacles. Um, they were very expensive to produce. I read, a, I read a statistic that said that the government in those days would give the big theaters a stipend of as much as 600,000 francs. That's a lot of money in the 19th century. But to produce just one of these operas could cost as much as 100,000 francs. And the fact is, even with ticket, uh, with the subsidy from the government and box office, these operas invariably lost money. And that was because they were enormous. Uh, this is a sketch of the, Meyer, of the um, premiere of Meyerbeer's Le Prophète in 1849. Uh, and you can just see how many people are on that stage. They all had to get paid. They all had to have a costume. They all had to be brought in to rehearse. Now, many of them didn't get paid very much at all. Uh, in fact, they say that the chorus girls ended up being prostitutes on the side just so they could pay their rent. But, you know, they got the chance to sing Meyerbeer operas. These operas had bigger and louder orchestrations. They demanded singers with bigger voices. They always were five acts. There had to be a ballet somewhere in it, generally in the fourth act. Um, they had big choruses where the chorus would stand and sing for about 20 minutes. If you saw um, the Rossini, uh, I think there are choruses like that. Casts of hundreds playing soldiers, buglers, and clergy. Uh, it was quite the spectacle. In fact, one of the critics of the time said, if we're not careful, the opera will become a power capable of overthrowing uh, and upsetting the balance of Europe because of the amount of people that were in it. <laughs> These operas were performed in the Salle de Pelletier. And it's interesting. I like this particular picture because I think it's a more honest rendition of what was going on in the opera in these days of grand opera spectacle. And that was that everybody was watching the audience much more than they were watching the stage. The, uh, the audience rarely arrived for act one. Uh, there always had to be a ballet, as I said, in act four or act five. That was so that the wealthy gentlemen of town could come to the opera and uh, ogle the girls, because you, know, you could actually see their ankles in the ballet. And uh, this became, uh, interesting enough, a problem for, for uh, Wagner. Wagner did a, his 
premiere of Tannhäuser in 1861 in uh, Paris. And interestingly enough, uh, he put the ballet in the first act. And this caused a huge scandal and led to the failure of this opera in France. Because the people who were paying for the opera didn't arrive till the third act. They missed the ballet. They were not happy. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure Wagner ever really went back to France after this. Unfortunately, the opera burned down, this Salle uh, de Le Pelletier burned down uh, in the 1870s because it was one of the first theaters that actually had gas for lighting. And at some point, that, uh, that didn't work out so well for them. Uh, and it was replaced by the opera house that we all know now, the Palais Garnier, that gorgeous opera theater that's uh, in the center of Paris. In, but by 1860, what was happening is these operas were falling out of fashion. It's very interesting because Wagner was uh, kind of poo-pooing all of these spectacles and this, uh, you know, all the stage effects that were distracting from the music. But if you know Wagner's operas, there are a lot of stage effects. You know, there's a lot of demands. They're usually huge. But the casts are small, uh, uh, certainly in the ring cycle. It only uses the chorus very, very little in that. Um, uh, there is... There is a chorus, of course, available in some of the other operas. But he really was kind of talking against the whole idea of, uh, of spectacle replacing the music. He didn't want the uh, opera, the, the scenery, as it were, the production, to distract from the opera itself, certainly from his music. The last opera by a foreigner, as it were, done in Paris was Verdi's Don Carlos, which was done in 1867. And he was essentially the last foreign composer invited to compose for the Paris Opera. From then on, for many, many decades, the only operas produced in Paris were at the Paris Opera were composed by French composers. Uh, Gounod comes along, and in 1859, uh, he pretty much changes the taste of the time with Faust. These operas really had smaller casts. They had choruses in it, but the choruses tended to be a little bit more integrated into the subject matter. Uh, these operas were not set against big historical epics in the background. For contrast, they were really about uh, 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 more intimate dramas, kind of domestic dramas. Um, and Faust was by far the most popular and most performed opera of its time. Uh, this was true, by the way, after it came to the Met. Um, they used to call it the Faust Spielhaus because it, if you know that term, Festspielhaus is the German term for you know, an opera theater. Uh, but they would call it the Faustspielhaus because it was performed so many times at the, at the old New Met, the one that was downtown. Uh, and um, uh, by, by the way, when it had its premiere, it was done in German because in those days, the uh, Metropolitan was considered a German house. And they did a lot of their repertory in German translation so that they could get the German singers that they wanted. Gounod was born in Paris in 1818. Um, his, he came from an artistic family. His father was an artist who died, unfortunately, when uh, Gounod was very young. He was only five when his dad died. Um, his mother was a pianist. And in order to support the family, she gave piano lessons. And in fact, Gounod was one of her first students. Um, they recognized that he had musical talent. Um, at 11, he entered the local lycée, the local uh, uh, grade school. And at the age of 13, he entered, uh, he attended uh, his first performance of Rossini's Otello, and it pretty much changed his life. He knew at that point that he wanted to be a composer and certainly hoped that he would have the opportunity to write opera. Uh, at 18, he went into the Paris Conservatory, and the big deal was that at 21, he run the Prix de Rome. This was a big deal for a young composer because it meant you got to go to Rome for four years and study music in Rome. So he did spend four years in Rome studying. He studied Palestrina and other sacred music of the 16th century. He was fascinated by this music. The interesting thing about Gounod was that he was very religious. Um, and in fact, uh, he thought at one point, I'll 
touch on this again, uh, of becoming a priest. He really was a very religious man, and he wanted to write music for the church. During this time, he also met Felix Mendelssohn's sister, Fanny Hensel, and she introduced him to the music of Bach. Um, in 1841, he's still a young man. He had his mass performed in Vienna. Again, he's only about 22 or 23, I think, at the time. This is a big deal for a young composer. But he did feel the pull of the church and actually started uh, studying at the, um, uh, you know, in, 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 the religious, uh, in the religious school at the time uh, and referred to himself as the Abbe Gounod. He, uh, he almost took the holy orders. He was very, very close to entering uh, the priesthood. Uh, but I guess the draw of opera and music was too strong for him. He wrote his uh, first opera, which is an opera called Sappho, uh, but it was a failure, and I think part of the reason it was a failure was because Meyerbeer was still it in Paris. These big spectacles, this was what people were still demanding, and they weren't quite ready for uh, this kind of more intimate opera that, um, that Gounod was interested in writing. Interesting also, this uh, um, Sappho, which was around 1851, this is the time when Verdi is writing Traviata, Trovatore, Rigoletto, and Stefalio. Uh, but somehow that wasn't catching on quite yet uh, with the Paris audiences. In 1852, he married Anna Zimmerman. Uh, she was the daughter of his professor at the conservatory. In 1859, uh, he was appointed the general director of the uh, conservatory, uh, and uh, he was also uh, appointed the head of teaching of singing in the Paris schools and the conductor of the brass band as well. He continued to write religious music, the Mess Solennelle, the Cecilia Mass, uh, which was a performance that really established his fame finally in Paris. He wrote symphonies. Uh, Georges Bizet, composer of Carmen, was one of his first and most famous students. And in 1856, he wrote a piece called Vive l'Empereur, uh, Long Live the Emperor, which was the official anthem of the Second Empire. It was a busy year for him. 1859 was a very good year. He had submitted an opera called Faust, uh, to the Paris Opera, and they had turned it down. Big mistake. Um, so it was picked up by another theater, uh, performed in uh, 1859, and uh, became, uh, it was not acclaimed right away. Interestingly enough, it was not a big hit. It was appreciated, but within a very short time, it was really appreciated. Uh, and uh, it had, by 1975, over 2,000 performances at the Paris Opera alone. So really, and as I said, and the Met was doing it constantly in the 1880s, and 1890s, 1900s, and on. Um, he wrote another few operas, uh, Philemon et Baucis, uh, Reine de Sabbat, I know you know all of these operas, uh, one of the La Non Sanglante, one of my favorites, The Bloody Nun, um, none of which were successful, frankly. Uh, and then in 1864, he wrote an opera which is known, was known and well received in its time, which is Mireille of 1864. So of the 12 or so or 15 operas that he ultimately wrote, um, really only three established themselves in the repertory. Faust, obviously, Romeo and Juliet as a second famous opera. Mireille was well received in its time. Again, I don't know if it's done anymore. I think it's done occasionally in Europe, but it's, as far as I know, it's never been done here. I do think there was a concert version in New York of this at one point. But again, an opera that's not uh, ever gone into the repertory. In 1867, he was now 49, uh, he wrote Romeo et Juliette. Uh, and his timing was perfect because the time of its um, premiere, there was the Exposition Universelle 
in the Universal Exposition in Paris at the time. So the city was jam-packed with foreigners and tourists all looking for something to do uh, when they had free time. And going to the opera was certainly the thing everybody wanted to do. Um, it ran for more than 90 consecutive performances. You know, in the old days, they did operas the way they do musicals. They didn't do it in repertory the way we do it. You open the opera, and if it was successful, you kept running it until the singers ran out of steam or the audience stopped coming. Uh, and hopefully you had more than one cast. But singers were used to singing night after night. It wasn't like now where a singer sings an opera and then takes a week off before they do their next performance. It was, an, at its time, more popular even than Faust was. Uh, in 1869, he wrote the Pontifical Anthem, which in 1949 became the official national anthem of Vatican City, and I think they still use it. He, uh, there was a lot going on in France. There was a lot of upheaval. Uh, there was a proclamation of the Republic and the siege of Paris, and he decided it would be safer for him and his family to get out of Paris, so they went to London. Now, while he was there, he wrote a lot of choral and vocal music, uh, again, church music. But he was so overworked that he had seizures, he had a lot of stress. Uh, and uh, one of the things he did write there was another piece I think will be very familiar to you. This is the funeral march of the marionettes, which he wrote in 1872. Um, and then Alfred Hitchcock just took it. So uh, 1874, he returned to France. His next opera was an opera called Saint Mars, but it was also a failure, not successful. And he wrote another opera in 1881, again, not very successful. And after that point, he said, that's it. And he never wrote another, never tried to write another opera or anything for the theater again. He'd written 12 operas, as I said. Three were considered major successes. Uh, but I think he saw the writing on the wall. Um, but he did, for the next 10 to 12 years, continue to write mus sacred music really prolifically. Um, and in uh, 1893, he wrote a requiem for his grandson, who died tragically on the young side. Um, and shortly after finishing that, Gounod died of a stroke uh, at St. Cloud, um, having composed over 600 works uh, in his canon, which is really an enormous output for a composer. Now, as I said, uh, the uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet, probably the second most popular opera for this composer, uh, in my mind, his most popular opera. Uh, it had its premiere in 1867 at the Théâtre Lyrique Theatre, which is now the Châtelet, if you know the Châtelet Theatre in Paris. What I love was that it was so popular, of course, that it had to have a parody. So the parody was Rome et O en juillet, which means uh, rum and water in July. <laughs> That's the title. But if you pronounce it right, it's Romeo et Juliet. You know? So uh, uh, this was a little review that was uh, written uh, in 1867 and was enormously popular running in the you know, popular music hall of uh, one of the popular music halls of Paris at the time. Uh, the opera moved on to New York uh, in 1867 in London. It, then it moved to the Opera Comique 
uh, in, uh, in 1873 for 391 performances over 14 years, which is a lot for an opera. And eventually it did get to the Paris Opera in the Palais Garnier in 1888. Um, he was so popular that his face was used in ads in American uh, advertising. I love this, a Steinway ad, the instrument of the immortals, Gounod being the immortal in this ad. Its first performance for the Met was in 1884, but it was not in New York. It was when the Met was on tour in Philadelphia. It only had one performance. And in 1891, it entered the Rep. And it played most years. I looked up in the archives. It, there were performances in most years, certainly into the 20s when they produced a new production of it, and into the 30s and the 40s, by the 40s scattered productions. Um, uh, and then there was a 20-year lapse, as I mentioned earlier. And it wasn't until 1967 that the opera was produced with Corelli and Franey. It was an enormous success. Uh, George Shirley sang the role, which was groundbreaking. To have an African-American tenor singing a romantic lead was unheard of in those days. And he was the first one to do that and to kiss, frankly, a Caucasian soprano on stage. Create, created quite a brouhaha in its time. Uh, and uh, Nikolai Geda also sang in that production. Uh, Judith Blagan sang in it. I'm trying to think. I was looking at. It. It was, they had really wonderful cast for it over those over those years. And now in 2017, the production I assume you're going to see tonight, or have seen, or will be seeing very soon, the new production uh, directed by Bartlett Scher. Uh, but it's basically a unit set, this big, large kind of courtyard, which gets used for all the different venues of the opera, obviously with lighting and other additions and subtractions. The synopsis is after the Shakespeare play of 1595. Uh, there are many versions of, of, of Romeo and Juliet. It was not new. Uh, Shakespeare didn't create this. It was based on tales and legends and other versions. Uh, one of the ones that he would probably have known about was uh, from a group of stories by Masuccio Salern Salernitano. And in that uh, novel and that telling of the story, the Romeo figure, whose name is Mariotto, is actually arrested in the tomb and sent off to jail and ultimately beheaded, and Juliet is sent to a convent. So it doesn't end with the suicide. In fact, I think the suicide was a device uh, that Shakespeare uh, and other contemporaries uh, introduced to the story uh, later. The opera starts with a wonderfully dramatic overture. It's all, uh, I mean, you know you're in trouble when you hear the first chords of the opera. Uh, and it's followed by a short fugetto, and then it leads right into a very beautiful um, choral uh, introduction, or prelude to the opera. The interesting thing is he's following the format, uh, and Carré and Barbier, who are his librettists, are following the format of Shakespeare, because Shakespeare indeed starts with a prologue. But this is really a very beautiful piece of music, this opening, and it really sets the atmosphere for the whole piece. Um, and it's sung by in theory, all the characters of the opera, sometimes the principals appear in it, sometimes they don't, depends upon the staging.
and we immediately are moved into a mass ball at the home of the Capulets um, and a waltz, which I always find fun because we are dealing with the Renaissance and the waltz was not a really popular dance <laughs> in that period. But if you've gone to Rosenkavalier, the fact is the waltz wasn't particularly popular. In fact, it didn't exist in the 18th century either. The, the, the waltz is really a 19th century dance. So, uh, but what doesn't matter, it's very French and it sets the atmosphere. And it's really quite a brilliant waltz. Uh, the, whole, the, the whole musical texture really just sparkles all through the opening number. Um, in it, uh, we get introduced to different characters. Uh, Tybalt, uh, who talks to Paris. Paris has been promised uh, by Capulet to marry his daughter, Juliet. Um, and then the, pl the party is crashed by Romeo, Mercutio, and Benvolio, his friends. And uh, Romeo is kind of pining. Um, he's had a, an affair with Rosalind, which has not ended well. He's pining for her, which is part of the reason that uh, Mercutio has brought him to the ball, hoping to kind of distract him. And he says to him, you know, really, love is very passing. Don't, don't get too invested, invested in this relationship. And he sings the aria of Queen Maud. Listen carefully to this tonight. As much as you're listening to the singer, listen to the orchestration. It is very fleet. The strings are warring away down there. Everybody is very busy in the orchestra, but it really gives you that sense of flight and energy. And it's really one of the, uh, it's one of kind of the unsung uh, special moments of the opera. We tend to focus very much on Romeo and Juliet's music, but it is really quite a wonderful aria for the baritone. Eventually, Juliet enters. She's with Gertrude, her, her, her nurse. Uh, she clearly knows that she's about to get married off to uh, somebody she doesn't want to marry. She's very young. In theory, she's around 14 years old, though I can guarantee you 14-year-olds can't sing this role. Uh, <laughs> but it's opera, as we well know. So she, uh, uh, she talks to Gertrude, and she confesses that she just wants to have more time to be young. And she sings Juliet's Waltz, one of the great brilliant arias of this. And trust me, a real challenge for the soprano. I um, uh, sat through many, many auditions over the years, especially for our Young Artist Program at Chautauqua. Many, many, many sopranos would bring in Juliet's Waltz. Very few of them got it right. It is an enormously challenging piece. It's not as easy as it looks. Well, it doesn't even look that easy, but people are crazy enough to take it on. But it's a tricky, tricky piece. It takes a great singer to really make it work. And uh, uh, we have Diana Damrell. I'm not worried. I think we're going to be just fine tonight. Uh, and of course, then uh, Juliet and Romeo meet. He's masked in the tradition of masked balls, which is all through uh, uh, social history of three, four hundred, five hundred years. If you're wearing a mask, you're incognito. No one's allowed to take the mask off. They're not allowed to ask you who you are. She meets this young man, has no idea, of course, that he's uh, from the enemy uh, family, uh, and clearly there is chemistry between them. Beautiful, one of the, fir the first duet that they sing, which is Ange Adorable, Adorable Angel, he calls her.
the structure of this piece is very interesting. It is really four duets with an opera around it. Uh, and you have to understand that. It is a little different in a way. Uh, most operas have certainly, you know, duets, trios, quartets, quintets, you know, different structure, but they're sung by different characters scattered throughout the piece. But this opera, the main focus of four of the scenes are these duets between Romeo and Juliet. Uh, and I'll talk about the challenge of that as we go along. Um, Tybalt recognizes Romeo uh, and wants to challenge him, but Capulet says, no, this is a masked ball. Let them go. We're not going to upset the party. And uh, the ball continues as they rush out. Um, the next scene uh, is so beautifully set um, by, um, by Gounod. He sets the, the balcony scene. Absolutely, the intro to it is absolutely shimmers. It, it's, it's just stunning. Stefano, who is uh, Romeo's uh, kind of page, uh, kind of helps him gain entry into the garden, leaves him alone. And he sings his aria, which is A Lève Toi Soleil, Arise, Sun, which of course is based on the uh, Shakespeare, but soft with light, you know, yonder window breaks, it is the east and Juliet is the sun. Again, one of the great highlights of this opera. Again, enormously challenging. The tenor has to go up to a high pianissimo. I think it's a B or a B flat at the end. It's always a challenge, but it is an absolutely stunning aria. And again, the color of the moment and the music is just really divine. It's just magical. Thank you. 
she eventually comes out on the, bal on the balcony. Uh, he climbs up to the balcony in theory, depends upon the production. Um, <laughs> I directed this, <laughs> give you a little inside story. So it wasn't my set, it was a set we had rented from another theater. <clears throat> and it had a great way to get up on the balcony, but it had a really bad way to get off the balcony. <clears throat> you could climb up through the vines again the balcony and supposedly you were supposed to climb down the same vines and I was not going to let the tenor do it because I knew he was going to end up dead if he did. It was just <laughs> too dangerous. So unfortunately, and if, wouldn't you know, it got picked up. Um, I said, look, unfortunately you're going to have to go back through the house to get out, you know. So as the duet ended, he bid adieu to her, ran into her bedroom and then came out the door underneath, <laughs> hoping that nobody in the house would see him. And with my luck, of course, the critics said, why the hell did Romeo go into the house at the end of the duet? You know? But I figured that was better than why did Romeo bash his head on the rocks at the end of the duet, you know, which would have been the other result. Anyway, um, uh, someday I'll tell you all my inside stories of directing opera. Um, uh, this leads into the duet between the two of them, which is Au Nuit Divin, Au Divine Night. Um, Gounod wrote in his notes, I read over this duet, I read it again. I'm afraid of finding it good and being mistaken. But it fires me. It still does. It was born of sincerity. In short, I believe it. So he was very excited about this scene. Uh, of course, they take, uh, they take leave of each other and agree to meet the next day. Um, Act three, scene one, starts in Friar Laurent's cell. Uh, they're married by, uh, by the priest with Gertrude as the witness. And Friar Laurent hopes that by marrying the two of them, he will get these families to finally stop fighting with each other and finally establish peace between the two families. 
Um, Act three, scene two takes place shortly after. We are in the main court. This is the, the main plaza, as it were, of, of Verona. Uh, and this, um, this is pictures of the scene. Um, Stefano, pages are always imps in opera, especially in, in Gounod operas, if you know uh, uh, Faust as well, the page in Faust. Uh, and he decides to antagonize the Capulets. Stefano kind of knows what's been going on. He, has a, he knows that uh, Romeo is in with uh, Juliet, uh, you know. And um, he teases them, he teases the Capulets that their little dove is uh, not, so, uh, not so innocent anymore. Um, this brings out Tybalt and Mercutio. It brings out members of both families. And suddenly there is an enormous uh, duel and a battle, as it were, in the courtyard. Um, Tybalt uh, and Mercutio get at it with each other. Romeo tries to disengage the two of them, and Mercutio is killed. Um, at that point, he can't hold back anymore, and Romeo kills Tybalt. At that point, um, con general consternation, as they say in opera, and a wonderful, wonderful chorus, uh, Au Dieu de Deuil, which is a day of sadness. And in the midst of all this, the, um, uh, the duke arrives, who kind of controls Verona, and banishes Romeo forever, tells him to leave, never to come back. And, and, and really, um, really lectures both families on the disasters that their anger towards each other has brought upon all of them. Act four takes place in Juliet's room. Romeo has snuck in to see her to say goodbye. Um, and after spending the night together, he's bidding farewell. Uh, Nuit de May, they say, it's the night of love. Beautiful, beautiful duet. At that point, after he's left Capulet, Juliet's father comes in and reminds her that she has to marry Paris and that things are starting. The wedding is about to take place. Of course, she realizes she can't for a lot of reasons. She's not in love with him, but she's also already married to somebody else. Uh, left alone with Friar Laurent, she begs him for help. And he gives her uh, a, a vial of a sleeping draught, something that will make it seem as if she's dead. And uh, she will um, uh, sleep. Uh, everyone will think she's dead, and then, of course, once she wakes up, she can escape with Romeo. He will get word to Romeo to meet her in the tomb. Now, uh, well, interesting thing here, because two things. First of all, this is the poison aria, the place for the poison aria for the soprano. Her second big aria. She's now sung a big aria, three duets at this point, and now has to sing the poison aria, and the poison aria is a killer. Uh, it's hard. It is because it has an ABA structure to it. Uh, it's very dramatic for the soprano because this this opera demands a kind of lightness for the French for, for French that French soprano voice of the time, uh, and yet she has to be dramatic too. It's the challenge for most operas that at some point you have to be dramatic, um, and it is against uh, challenging. When I did this uh, some years ago, uh, once we ended up cutting the aria completely. Uh, we did put a cut into the aria to make it easier for the soprano at the time, and then I think she got sick, and we ultimately had to just cut it from the performance just to make it easier on her. Uh, I think tonight you're going to hear it all the way through. There's no question. But it is. But as you're hearing it, realize we're deep into the opera. Juliet still has one more duet, big scene to do, uh, with uh, you know the tomb scene is coming up, and has to really pace yourself. And it, but it is a, it is, but it is a thrilling, thrilling aria, uh, and the right thing at that moment. So now. Backtrack to nine or ten years ago, and I'm getting ready to do my own production of this. And I hadn't listened to the opera in years, and I got out, I bought a CD because, frankly, I had it on. You know, remember those big round things we used to use? So I had to get myself a CD to listen to the opera. And while I'm listening to it in the car, 
we get through the poison aria, and then all of a sudden this music starts, and I have no clue what this music is. I was like, I've never heard, what is it? And then I went, oh my God, it's the ballet. It's act four of a French opera. We have to have a ballet. And I'm going, what is her ballet doing? The woman's just drunk poison, and she's like dead, and how's that? And, and then there's a chorus singing. I mean, you know, this is beautiful, big chorus singing. Uh, it's the wedding procession, it turns out. So I go and I get home, and I was in the car. I couldn't even find out what was going on. I think, I think if I remember right, I pulled aside to like in a gas station so I could get the book out to find out what the heck was going on, why I didn't know this music. Well, it's the wedding procession. Traditionally, the ballet, this music is cut. Uh, usually she drinks the poison and collapses. But the way they wrote it was she drinks the poison and it's slow acting. So we can have a ballet. And Capulet comes in and the whole family comes in and they dress her for the wedding and then they sing a hymn to marriage and chastity and she processes in front of the priest. And then at that point, that's when she collapses so that Capulet could say, oh mon Dieu, mort, mort, and she's gone. The scene ends, obviously either before or after the wedding with her collapsing in supposed death. Uh, and then we go to the last scene. The introduction to the last scene, again, is one of the great exquisite moments. It's the sleep of Juliet is what it's called in the score. And it is uh, uh, kind of descriptive of her quietness uh, as she lays still in the tomb. Romeo has not gotten the message, as you may well know. There actually is a little scene in the opera, but again, very often cut. Is that what's coming out here? Oh, oh, it's the fire alarm. 
It's all right. Um, <clears throat> uh, anyway, I think they're trying to warn Romeo. Maybe that's right. uh, uh, Romeo, uh, there is a little scene in the opera, about two pages, where there's a dialogue between, I think, Stefano and Frère Laurent, where we find out that the message never got to Romeo. Now, again, whether they'll do it or not, I don't know. Because, again, very often that's just cut because it's like a recitative in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but clearly he hasn't got the message. Um, he gets to the tomb. He sees her there. Um, he takes poison. Now, in the Shakespeare, he takes poison and dies. And just as he dies, she awakes. And she speaks, does her Shakespearean monologue, and then she takes a knife and stabs herself. But this is opera. And we have to have a duet. You know, it's demanded by the public. You don't end your, end your opera without a duet. So indeed, as he drinks the poison, she awakes. He realizes what's happened. He tells her what's happened. They sing their final duet together, and they uh, die in each other's arms, singing um, Console-toi, pauvre me. Uh, cons we, I, let me console you, my, my dear, my beloved. Um, uh, and there is no reconciliation of the families. In the Shakespeare plays, the, fa the families gather in the tomb. And there's a reconciliation between the Capulets and the Montagues that doesn't happen in the opera. It just ends with their death. Gounod's first act ends brilliantly. When you hear the music, the sparkle of the waltz that ends the first act. Um, the second act, he wrote, was tender and dreamy, which is very true. The third act, which ends with the duel and the exile, is very bold and animated. Uh, the fourth act is truly dramatic. And then the fifth is tragic. And he, as he wrote, it is a fine progression. And indeed it is. I think you're going to love every moment of it tonight. That was stage director Jay Lessinger talking about Romeo et Juliette. The opera is on stage now at the Met with a star-studded cast featuring Diana Damrau and Vittorio Grigolo. It returns in March with Pretty Yende and Stephen Costello in the title roles. If you cannot make it to a live performance, then be sure to catch the Live in HD broadcast this coming Saturday, January 21st, 2017, at a movie theater near you. I'm Naomi Baratera. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. <laughs>